0: Welcome to you. Um, Good morning, my name's Thomas. I serve as a college pastor here at Providence. So good to see you this morning. Um, Thanks for being here. A special welcome to guests and visitors in the house with us this morning. And as always, a special welcome to those of you joining us via the live stream this morning as well. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. So I invite you to find a Bible and go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 6. Because that's where we're going to be today. If you're new to Bible, um, perhaps you don't even have one. You can find one under the chair in front of you. If you look around, um, you should see a Bible around there. And Romans is in the New Testament. That's the right part of the Bible. Okay, So you want to open up and start turning. You want to get over to the right part of the Bible. And um, it's going to say Romans at the top. And we're looking for chapter 6. That's the big number that you'll see scattered around the text. And today we are going to study verses 1 through 14. 1 through 14. Those are the smaller numbers that you see as you're turning around. So, we're in a teaching series on the book of Romans, a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church in Rome. And Paul wrote this letter to encourage these people in their faith, to give them hope in the salvation that they have in Jesus, and in order to pump them up with a hype video of sorts, to keep them going in this mission that God had put them on. And friends, very simply, that's, that's exactly what we want to be about this morning. We want to come to this, we want to read this, we want to be encouraged about the salvation that we have in Christ. Um, if you're here today and you know you're not a Christian, um, then in hearing this, you can hear about the hope that can be found in Christ, and then we want to be dialed in on Christ today so that we may be able to continue in the mission that He's given us, okay? So with that being said, before we read this and I share um, a few thoughts about what's going on here with you, let's just pause with the word of prayer and ask God to speak to us in this moment. Let's pray together. With your head bowed, ask that God would speak to you from Romans 6. God, we come to you very simply now as needy people in many ways needing to receive from your word. So God, we ask you to speak to us. We ask that you would reveal yourself in your word. We ask that you would show us Christ. And God, as we see Christ, we pray that we would come to treasure you, God, above all other things, God, we ask that our own lives and our hurts and the things that we're happy about and the things that feel out of place, God, we ask that all of those things would find their right place as we see Christ. God, we pray for renewed purpose for how you want us to live in your world. Capture our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I invite you to follow along as I read and really pay attention to this because you're going to be bored if you don't because I'm just about to talk about what it says, okay? So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul begins, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is such a good word for us today. And if I could hang a question over our time together, the question would very simply be this. How does life change happen for a Christian? How does life change happen for a Christian? Once you trust Christ, what is the process by which your life begins to look different? And I encourage you to consider Whoever you are and wherever you're coming from, this has something to say to you in your life this morning. Consider with me, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you simply feel stuck in a rut. We won't go for amens at this moment, but we all know where we are this morning. We've tried everything that we know to try, and we just can't change. How does life change happen? This has something to say to us today. Maybe you're a new Christian here today, and you want to grow, and you want to change, but you just don't know how. This has something to say to you this morning. And maybe, maybe, maybe you're even here. You're even watching this this morning or sometime, and you know you're not a Christian. And you've tried everything you know, right? Right? Like a baker's rack in the kitchen full of diet books and you're wanting to diet and nothing works, right? You know who you are. Nothing seems to change you. You've tried everything. You've tried every recipe. You've tried every formula and you just don't know what to do. God has something to say to you from this word today. So regardless of where you are, this has something for you. In Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, Paul unpacks for us in the most practical of terms how life change happens for a Christian. So, how does life change happen for a Christian is going to be the banner question over our time together this morning. But here's what's unique about this. If you were paying attention to when we read the text, You probably noticed that the question that we're thinking about this morning is different than the question Paul poses to us most immediately in the text. Did you notice the question that Paul is really wrestling with? It was right there at the top, chapter 6, verse 1. Can we look at it one more time together? What shall we say then? This is his question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's his question. And his question arose from his teaching over the gospel. Because Paul preached a gospel that was utterly different than anything the world had ever heard before. It is different than all other systems of thought. It is different than all other philosophies. It is different than anything else that anyone could ever create. Because the gospel says that undeserving people are saved freely, not by any merits of their own, but only by God's undeserved favor shown in Christ Jesus. Okay, so very simply, the gospel isn't something that you go and achieve. The gospel is something that you simply receive. And this is radical. And the world hadn't heard anything like this before. And people were hearing Paul's teaching about this radical grace in the gospel. And we just saw hints of it in the video that we watched together. Hold on. If I'm saved by grace alone... Does that just give me rights to live however I want? That's the question. Are we to continue in sin that grace can abound? If we're saved by this grace, should we just keep on committing sins so grace can just keep piling up? Is that how this thing is supposed to work? And friends, very, very simply, Paul is going to say no. Paul brings up this question because he's driving at a much deeper question for our lives that you're going to see develop throughout the rest of this chapter. But I want you to go on and get a hint of it before we get into it. Would you look down at verse 19 with me? Look at verse 19. What is Paul driving at with this question? Here's where Paul comes from. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thanks, Paul. I knew I was stupid. I didn't need to be reminded of that. Okay. For just as you were... Just as you were once, pre- once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so you now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, there was a time when you were in sin, and all you pursued in sin was more sin. He said, a new day's here, when now you were found in Christ, And the goal of your new life isn't to just keep pursuing old sin. That old man is dead. He's not even alive anymore. So it doesn't make sense to live that old way. You have a new life to live. And the goal of your life is sanctification. Okay? So we're going to return to that in just a moment. So some people wonder, how could this message even change you at all? Right? I mean, this message that says, hey, it isn't about anything that you've done in order to be made right with God. It's a free gift through Jesus Christ. This is so radical. I think if we're all being really honest with ourselves, we have to pause and even wonder, how does this stuff even change somebody? The thought that God just freely and unconditionally just saves people, like how does that even change us? One of Martin Luther's, favorite dictums is that we are saved by grace alone, and that saving grace is never alone. You see, before God saves us, we are saved by nothing we've done on our own, and as an evidence of this free and gracious salvation that we've been given, it will show up in transformed lives. And as we meditate on that grace, it will bear fruit in our lives in all kinds of ways. So let's get into it. How does life change happen for a question, being this one massive question that we're going to think about this morning. I want to share with you three keys to unlock life change in your own life. And they all start with R, so hopefully they'll be a little easy to R, remember. You see what I said there? Remember how Jesus saved us, realize what Jesus has given us, and we need to rehearse the gospel. First things first, let's look at it together. First, we need to remember how Jesus saved us. This is what Paul talks about in the first four verses. How am I going to change as a Christian? Change starts in your head with remembering how Jesus saved you. Paul responds to the question in verse 1 in two ways. First, in outrage. Then, in an argument. The words that you see right there after the question, by no means, Greek word for meganoitoi, right? Meganoitoi, may it never be, by no means. Modern translation, Paul, should we keep sinning that grace can keep piling up? Are you crazy? That's what Paul said in the Greek right there. That's what what he's saying. It's outrage, right? Paul blows his lid over this one right here because it's absurd to think about. But we've all thought it. I've thought it, and we think it because we don't understand the God and the grace that's on the offer to us. So Paul responds with outrage, and then an argument that continues through the chapter, and let's trace the different veins of this argument. Well, the first thing we see is that we need to remember how Jesus saved us. We need to remember that Jesus lived as our Savior. Very simply, His life was counted as ours. Remember that. His life was counted as your life. Jesus lived a life that was counted as ours. And this is good news because the life that we need to live before God has to be flawless. Earlier in this letter, Paul made the point that all of us need a perfect performance record in order to be accepted before God. And we also learned that we're in really bad shape because we're not going to be able to get that record on our own. We need somebody to give us that record because we're never going to be able to achieve it on our own. We learned that God saves sinners by faith in the blood of Jesus. And this is possible because the life that Jesus lived, He lived for you. He lived that for you and in your place. Therefore, Jesus' good deeds become your good deeds. Jesus' past becomes your past. So freedom from your past is only found in Jesus. That's the only place you're going to get set free from everywhere you've been and everything you've done is in Jesus. So, does it make sense to keep on sinning christian because you don't have a record of sinning the second thing we need to remember is that jesus died as our substitute jesus died as our substitute and yes these words are interchangeable but i'm trying to create some emphasis or some emphasis for you right here on this point his death was counted as our death Throughout these verses, sin is connected with death. Death is the necessary result of our sinning. The gospel teaches that Jesus died in our place as our substitute in order to set us free from sin. The good news is that the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus' death was counted as our death. So you and I owe a debt that we can't pay with our lives to God. Man, we've done bad stuff. We, we've been to some crazy places and we've done some wild things. Amen? We don't. Oh, oh, I heard you. I heard you right there. <laughs> and the beautiful news of the gospel is that Jesus stepped in and he took the death penalty for you. How am I supposed to stop sinning? Remember this. Remember this. He lived as your Savior. He died as your substitute. And think about it. We, we think a lot and we talk a lot as well we should about the fact that Jesus lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. But we need to remember, Jesus not only did these things for us, Jesus did these things as us. This is a perfect life and a perfect record that gets counted to your account. You get this because of Jesus. So it doesn't make sense to keep on sinning. Because that old sinner, that old past, is just that. It's the past. It's not here anymore. So it doesn't make sense to go around walking around piling up more sins because you're not a sinner in God's eyes anymore. As a result of this, you can see the illustration that he uses. As a result of this, Christians should remember their baptism. You see that right down there in the last few verses, in verse 2, 3, and 4. Christians remember these things by remembering their baptisms, the things that we do right back there in the hot tub. Baptism is kind of like a wedding ring, or as the cultural prophetess Beyonce said, if you really like something, then you should put a ring on it. And just like baptism with God, like a wedding ring in a wedding, if you're really into this, then you go ahead with baptism. You go ahead with saying, I want to go public with how I feel about you, God, in the same way that a man proposes to a woman baptism is a public symbol of how you feel about God. It's it's when you publicly identify with Jesus by going down into the water. And the water represents a grave. And being submerged beneath the water represents being buried with Christ. Not for three days, just for maybe three seconds. And then you're brought up out of the water, representing the resurrection that Jesus had from the grave. You're representing that with your own life. You are identifying with Jesus You're reminding yourself, you're remembering, this is true for me, so I'm going to act it out with my body. And you're reminding brothers and sisters in Christ, this is true for us, friends. That's exactly what Paul's talking about right here. Don't you see it? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Okay, so coming up out of the water represents this resurrection life that we have and we need to remember this. How am I going to change as a Christian? First thing, remember how Jesus saved you. You do that in your head. Second thing, realize what Jesus has given us. First thing we do is remember, what, remember how Jesus has saved us. Second thing, realize what Jesus has given us. And we see this in verses 5 Through 11. If you wanted to think of it, the the first truth that we see is really something that takes place in the head, right? Remembering is uh, an, an act of the mind. It's when we have to actively call things back to attention. But then realizing and treasuring something is really an activity of the heart. So we're talking about our head and our heart. And if you're tracking with this, we're eventually going to get to our hands and how we live with our lives. We need to realize what Jesus has given us. And the key idea here is union. Union. All that Jesus has is ours. And you see that right there at the start of verse 5. We are united with Christ in his death. Therefore, we will also be united with him in his life. United. United is a good word. It is a horticulture word. And it's like the word that means to be engrafted. So if you could imagine with me, I thought about finding a twig in my yard this morning, and it really wouldn't have been that hard, because there's lots of twigs in my yard this morning. But if you could imagine, I had a twig right here, right? A little twig. In fact, a dead twig, that's what it means to be twig, is you're dead, right? So little twig, little twig. And what this means is, what's true for you, Christian? is that part of what you get when God saves you is God takes a little twig and God engrafts it into a massive oak tree. He surgically implants it into the tree. Or throughout the course of the new life for this old dead twig that's now new because it's attached to something bigger and stronger than itself, well, this twig is going to become inseparable from this oak oak. And eventually you're going to look at it and you're not going to be able to tell where, is that twig or is that oak? I can't tell. It's because they're, they're together. They're united. They've been engrafted to one another. And that's how that twig grows big and strong into a strong branch where lots of leaves grow. And that's how that twig goes to bear much fruit because it's been engrafted into the oak. And friends, that is precisely what happens when God saves a sinner. He engrafts the sinner into Christ. And he's making that sinner new day by day because you have been united with Christ. United with Jesus, engrafted like a twig into a massive oak. It's a key idea, union. Maybe to help you think of it a a different way, um, you could uh, picture a wedding, right? You could even um, imagine... Someone who became rich, right? Imagine one person worked really hard, um, lived a really diligent life, um, accumulated some wealth, and one day this person gets married. And the person that the person wasn't even married to. This person worked really hard. This person lived a good life. This person did lots of great stuff. This person comes along, wins the affections of that one somehow, and they get married. And in an instant, everything that was true for this person becomes true for this person by means of a legal union and a declaration that's been declared over there. Lives. Friends, this is exactly what we have in Christ. Like a, a wedding picture. I don't know, we might have it. Um, this is just yesterday. In fact, this is 14 hours ago in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, I officiated a wedding. That's my wife Elizabeth back there. This is Trent, and this is just how we felt led to pose. Um, we're sitting here at this wedding and they're sharing their vows with one another and they're making their promises to one another, not in this position. It looked a little more formal than this. And they get down to that point and by, by the end of this thing is they pledge their life, love, and loyalty to one another, right? A graduate from UNC, her, married, a guy from NC State, him, right? The gospel does conquer all different divides. Isn't that beautiful? And in a moment, In a moment, everything they had over here is shared by a legal union. Friends, what I want you to realize is that right now, right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated in the place of honor. He's seated in the place of presidents and prime ministers right at the right hand of God Almighty. And Jesus sits there, and the Father has nothing but good affection for Jesus. The Father loves Jesus because of the life that He lived. He loves Jesus because of the past that He has. God is ultimately satisfied in Jesus. And friends, I want you to see the argument that Paul's making right here for us. When God sees you, Christian, who have been united with this one, and who identify with this one, and have been engrafted with this one, when God sees that in Jesus, God sees the same when He looks at you. How am I going to stop sinning? Realize what God has given you. You're not a little twig anymore. I mean, you're you're part of a branch on a massive oak. People look at the oak. They don't notice the branch. They notice the oak, but you're there. God looks at Jesus with affections and passion and just, he's proud of him. Friends, God, positionally, the righteousness that you have before God, God looks at you and He sees that. How am I going to stop sinning? I'm going to remember in my head, okay, this is how Jesus saved me. I'm going to cherish, I'm going to realize in the heart, okay, this is what's true of me now. Okay, and then I'm going to think, how am I supposed to live with my life? Well, friends, part of realizing Um, What you have in Jesus is in part when you get to realize the new purpose that you have because of your salvation. Christians have a new purpose. How is our life supposed to be lived? The sad reality is that for for so many of us, I, I know this is true for my life. It might be true for you as well. When God saves us, our desires are simply far too small. And we need God to grow those desires out to make them bigger and richer. You see, when God saves us, like our needs, they're actually far too small because we're like, I just want a little boost. I just want a little comfort. I just want to feel better. I just need a little pick-me-up. I just need a little motivation. I just need a little help. I just need God to get me through this next season when God has plans that are, in fact, that and so much more. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right, and he's stopping leaks in the roof, and so on. You know that those jobs need doing, so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one that you thought of. You see, God is throwing out a new wing here. He's putting up an extra floor there. He's running up towers and he's making courtyards. You thought you were made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, this is true of us because of union with Christ. We must not forget that when we find ourselves united with Christ, who lived a bold and a daring life, then our lives are now united in that same vein with him. His purposes become our purposes. His mission becomes our mission. And he is up to reforming and reshaping the whole world. And he calls us into that as we get to participate with him. Okay, here comes the last one. How am I going to change as a Christian? I need to remember how Jesus saved me. I need to realize what Jesus has given me. And here's the third R I need to rehearse the gospel. I need to rehearse the gospel. I don't know about you, but I am a very, very, very forgetful person, right? My wife could stand up and testify to this reality right now. I need to be reminded of things, right? I need to be told things. In fact, I need to walk around actually thinking about the right things all the time because I I can handle being told something, but I need to walk around in a sense just reminding myself of what I've been told and reminding myself, okay, look, this is what you're up to. This is what today is about. This is what life is all about. And you and I need to be the same way with the gospel. So much of this text hinges on paul telling us time and time again don't you know look at verse 3 do you not know see this is something you should note are you not holding on to this look at verse 11 count yourselves consider yourselves okay this is something that's true for you are you thinking like this see the gospel is something that we have to work hard to remember if it is remembered, then life will change as a result. And I say this to you as an encouragement today. If you are not changing, it is not because you lack any resources that you need as a Christian. You believe the gospel and you have the Spirit of God and you're living in community. You have everything that you need to change. At the same time, those resources, they must be put to work. So think of it. If you're failing to change, it's because you're failing to remember who you are see we must be conscious of who we are that's the key Jesus has freed us Jesus lived for us Jesus died for us Jesus rose for us Jesus doesn't hold my past against me why am I holding my past against me Jesus isn't so hard on me and demanding on me why am I so hard on me why am I so demanding on me We need to be conscious of who we are. I I know what probably happens at this point. It's the same thing that happened to me as I'm studying this. I'm like, okay, if all of this is coming together, and this really is what this process is all like, this is how I'm going to change as a Christian. Why does change take so long? I mean, I'm asking for this desire to be changed and the desire is still there. I'm asking for a, a new heart and a new passion over there and I'm just, I'm, it's just not getting there. A guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in London. He preached a lot from Romans 6 and when he preached in Romans 6 he had an illustration that he would use to drive the point home and I think it's fitting for us today. So I share it with you now. Imagine a land where one people had enslaved and oppressed another people. And imagine the interactions that you would have seen around town. You go out to the town square and a member of the oppressing party could have taken a member of the enslaved party and, and bossed him or her around. He Could have told her what to do. He could have pointed things out. If that enslaved person didn't obey... Well, the oppressing party could have had that person beaten or even even killed. But then imagine a new king comes into power. And imagine that this king goes into all the country, and this king declares an emancipation once and for all for all people. People are free at last, and the king wants to be sure of it. So he writes new laws and he writes new legislations. He paints a new picture of what life is supposed to be all about and he presents it to his people. He sets up police and governors in every town. Now everyone is free and they're free at last. But do you think that's all that's needed for emancipation to take place practically in the lives of people? It's not. You see, even though the new legislation had been passed, and even though there was a new law for the land, and even though people were no, longer, um, they were no longer legally or positionally in captivity, they walked around town very practically in captivity. You see, you go back to the town square, and a member of the oppressing party walks back out. They might be tempted to boss the enslaved person around, but they don't have power anymore. And the enslaved person might see his oppressor. And the enslaved person might be tempted to look at the oppressor and think, oh my goodness, don't beat me again. Don't send me there again. But the only problem with that is that that oppressor isn't an oppressor anymore. His power has been revoked by the king because the king has conquered him. And they are now equals. The slaves continue to live as slaves when slaves fail to remember the way that the king had set them free. Slaves continue to live as slaves when slaves fail to realize and cherish the freedom that they've been given. And slaves will live as slaves when slaves fail to walk around the town square, not rehearsing in their hearts words of their own captivity, but rehearsing in their hearts words of their freedom and reminding themselves day in and day out as they look for jobs on the internet, how God has set them free. As they raise kids in the home, how God has set them free. As they walk from the lunchroom to the cubicle, they're reminding themselves how God has set them free. Why does change take so long? It takes so long because we are so slow to remember and to remind ourselves of the great freedom that we have in Christ. This is how Paul was able to conclude at the very end, and we'll close with this, Romans 20 to 23. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit, remember the engrafting illustration, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and it's end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very simply, if you were here this morning and you were not a Christian, please know that eternal life is a free gift, it's a free offer, and it's only found in putting your faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, know that Jesus died to set you free from sin and in order to enable you to live a life to God. May we believe that this is true. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Romans 6, and I thank you for speaking really directly to our hearts and, and showing us the things from your word. Your, your word is, it is, it is so penetrating. It pierces right through us has a way of understanding us. And God, for the questions that we ask, your word has answers, and for the questions that we, we then know that we need to ask after that, God, your, your word addresses that as well. God, very simply, I ask that you will help us to remember how Jesus has saved us. God, for every Christian in the room, help us to realize the immensity of riches that we have in our union with Christ. And God, for this to be real in our lives, help us to rehearse this news daily. And I pray that it will show up in little twigs growing into massive branches that bear much fruit so you would be glorified. And we pray for it in Jesus' name, amen.